Hi, and welcome to the Pastor Jim Rose podcast. We're happy to have you partake in something that is getting harder and harder to find. Biblical teaching, where scripture is rightly handled. This episode is just a little different. Pastor Rose is going to step aside for this teaching to allow a guest speaker, which we've never done this. Our guest speaker tonight is the pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church in Fredericksburg, Texas, Pastor Alex Garcia. And he is presenting a message on spiritual warfare, spiritual war waged by redefining freedom, discrimination, and equality. We're delighted to have you tonight. We're in a different room for those who see us and hear us by extension. And we are especially happy to be here in this different room because we have with us tonight my pastor and his wife, Stephanie and Alex Garcia. And uh, they have meant a lot to Phyllis Ann and I. He, uh, we have sort of a similar background, although he's much younger than I am. And uh, I was an engineer and God said, yeah, that's fine, Rose, but I want you to do something else. Alex was a lawyer. I guess a longer time, because you, you uh, but he, what I hear was an exceptional lawyer. I think he's an exceptional pastor, and we've been blessed greatly by being in Fredericksburg Bible Church, and he's been willing to come over and speak tonight. We hope to have him back again. I'll let him tell you what he's going to be dealing with, but it's a subject that will be very valuable for us. Next week for us... Next week, we'll be going back to Daniel, chapter 2. I will do a brief overview of present-day Israel, because I've had so many questions on it, and uh, we uh, will not take long to do that. But Daniel certainly got the feeling people are getting there now before he was transported to Babylon. We're hoping that doesn't have to happen to Israel this time. So, but anyway... Alex, thank you for coming. Stephanie, hold your hand up, Steph. There she is back there. Like, uh, uh, she has just been a delight. And uh, like uh, me, Alex uh, married better than his wife. Our wives are both much more beautiful and better than we are. But we, we put up, they put up with it. We married up. Thank you for coming, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, Jim, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first before we uh, study the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your word, open our minds so that we may metabolize your truth and incorporate it into our lives so that we may honor you and not ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to to uh, to speak with y'all, and and um, uh, you know, there's a there's a limit on how many lawyers they let in the seminary, and uh, somehow they left the chain off the gate, and I just kind of wandered in, and um, and so um, I practiced law for uh, for a number of years, and then the, the Lord uh, moved us um, into ministry, and um, and so we're at uh, we're at Fredericksburg Bible Church, as as Jim mentioned. Uh, Jim asked that I uh, present to y'all a message on uh, the spiritual condition of our nation. And I wish that I could come this evening and tell y'all that we're in great shape. But that is not the case. And in fact, we're in such terrible shape that honestly, it's difficult for me to know where to begin a message like this. I mean, it's such a big topic. I almost feel like uh, like a mosquito at a nudist colony. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure where to begin. Um, but I think on a topic of this size, it's good to break it down into bite sizes. And so what I want to do tonight is break this topic down of the spiritual condition of our nation into three bites, really three words. I want to break the message down into three words tonight. Freedom, discrimination, and equality. You hear people talking about these words all the time. You hear elected officials, you hear politicians talking about these words, 
judges, educators, celebrities, members of the media. And I believe these three words give us a glimpse into what is happening with our country. In many ways, these three words guide us. They guide us as a culture. They guide our courts. They guide our classrooms. They guide our halls of government. And they guide our leaders. Let's start with the word freedom or free. It's a beautiful word. It is a beautiful word. Jesus uses this word in John chapter 8, verse 36, where he says, if the Son makes you free. Now, the reference there to the Son is, if you look at the context just a little bit before this passage in John 8, Jesus uses the, the, the title Son of Man, which is a messianic title that comes from Daniel 7. And so when Jesus says here in John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, he's referring to himself in the third person. If Jesus makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom versus spiritual bondage. Jesus offers freedom from the slavery of the evil one. You see, there are only two options. There are only two options in this life. Serve the evil one or serve God. There's no Third option. There's no neutral option. You say, well, look, I, I, I don't want to do either of those two options. Sorry. Those are the only two options that are available to, to human beings. Either serve Satan or serve God. There is no neutral third option. Our ancestors used to understand this principle. Our American ancestors used to understand this principle. America was founded by Christians. Amen? Amen. America wasn't founded by Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims, and certainly not by atheists. This is not the case. It wasn't founded as such. As Christians, our American ancestors understood that we are at war. We are at war, and we have been at war for long, 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 long time. We are in a spiritual war, and in this war, there are no Switzerlands. You know what I mean when I say Switzerland? In World War II, Switzerland was, was neutral. Supposedly. Supposedly neutral. In the spiritual war, there are no Switzerlands. There is no neutrality in this war. Listen to the words of a pastor of a bygone generation, A.W. Tozer, who gave these pastoral words of warning over six decades ago. It's kind of an extended quote, so stick with me here. Tozer says, going no further back than the times of the founding and early development of our country, we are able to see the wide gulf between our modern attitudes and those of our fathers. In the early days when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. Our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force, and they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. These were opposed to each other in the nature of them forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable hostility. Man, so our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. Tozer says, for him it must be life or death, heaven or hell. And if he chose to come out on God's side, he could expect open war with God's enemies. The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. Men looked forward to heaven as a return from the wars, a laying down of the sword to enjoy in peace the home prepared for them. Sermons and songs in those days often had a martial quality about them, a warlike a military quality about them, Tozer says, or perhaps a trace of homesickness. The Christian soldier thought of home and rest in a reunion. Tozer goes on and says, it is still a solid Bible doctrine that tremendous spiritual forces are present in the world, and man, because of his spiritual nature, is caught in the middle. The evil powers are bent upon destroying him while Christ is present to save him through the power of the gospel. To obtain deliverance, he must come out on God's side in faith and obedience. That in brief is what our th fathers thought and that we believe 
is what the Bible teaches. How differently today, Tozer says, how different today. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight, we are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land, we are at home. We are not getting ready to live, we are already living. And the best we can do is to rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full." Close quote. I say again, we have but two options. One is to serve the evil one, and the other is to serve God. One is to serve in the domain of darkness, and the other is to serve in God's coming kingdom. The spiritual war rages on uh, around us, among us, and even inside of us. There is no avoiding the war. We must take sides. Our founding fathers were Christian, and the few who were not at least respected Christianity. As Christians, our founding fathers understood that political freedom is dependent on spiritual freedom, on the spiritual freedom that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Listen to Samuel Adams of Boston, who was more than just a beer maker. Samuel Adams says this, the right of freedom is the gift of the Almighty. The rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institution of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Notice what Adams does here, what Sam Adams does. He ties the right to freedom to Christ, to the head of the Christian church, which is not Muhammad. The head of the Christian church is Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, God incarnate. And so what Adams does, what Sam Adams does, is he connects the right to freedom to Jesus Christ. He connects the right to freedom to the New Testament. How about Patrick Henry of Virginia? He said this in a public debate about whether to declare freedom from King George. In other words, whether to declare independence. He said, an, an appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. We shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations, and he will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. Is life so dear, or peace so sweet, as to be purchased at the chains, at, at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You see what Henry does here. Henry connects. He connects political liberty to a just God. He connects political freedom to the God of hosts. Host, by the way, is an old English word that means armies. And so when Henry makes this connection between political freedom and the God of hosts, he's referring to the God of the armies. And then he links political freedom to almighty God. All of these connections are the tying of political freedom to the living God. But more than that, he finishes this statement that we've learned in our history books. Give me liberty or give me death. And he declares it with great courage because here's the deal. If you were a patriot in the colonies and you declared independence from King George, it was your head. The king would have you unceremoniously hung as a traitor. And so it took great courage for Henry to stand up in a public forum. He's not at home having a private conversation with his wife or his kids. He's in a public debate there in Virginia about whether they should declare independence. And he ends it with, give me liberty or give me death. Why? What's the context for that? What we do in our public schools today is we emphasize give me liberty or give me death, which actually is, is a beautiful phrase. But you can't take that phrase out of its context. The only reason this man has the courage to declare this in public is because of the God of hosts, the God of the armies. It's because of the just God. It is because of Almighty God. That's what gives him the courage to make this statement. My point is this, Henry undeniably links the living God 
with political freedom. How about Sam Adams, cousin by the name of John Adams, our second president? He said this a number of years after the Constitution was ratified. He said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry. Gallantry is an old word, old English word that has the idea of force or, or, or brave, strong force. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You see, what Adams does, like his cousin, is he connects the freedoms of our Constitution to Christianity. And when he says religion, he doesn't mean just any old religion that falls off the turnip truck. He doesn't mean just any old religion that, 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 that you find somewhere in the marketplace of ideas. He means Christianity, because that's what he's trained in. Where did John Adams go to school? He went to Harvard. <laughs> Where did Sam Adams go to school? Harvard. But of course, that Harvard is a different Harvard than the Harvard of today. Look at what the men of the men who formed Harvard, look at look at what they said as to the reason which they formed the school. And by the way, Harvard was founded with public funds, with public funds. It was established as a seminary to train men to teach the word of God. Look at what the founding fathers of Harvard said. And now the language here is it's not old English. It's not middle English. It's, it's modern English, but it's still some centuries old. And so you'll see the spelling is a little uh, is a little different than uh, what we're used to. But th those men who founded Har Harvard with public funds said this, after God had carried us safe to New England, meaning from the mother country, from the mothership, from England, after God had carried us safe to New England and we had builded our houses, provided necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity. That's you and me. We're part of the poster posterity that these men were, were that these men, I mean, they, they didn't have us particularly in mind, but they had future generations of Americans. Texas wasn't even on their mind. Texas was just a backwater place um, at that time. But let me keep reading, learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. They're mortified. They're mortified at the idea that they're going to die and they will not have trained subsequent generations of men in the teaching of the word of God, who can stand flat-footed behind a pulpit and say, thus says the Lord of the universe. They're terrified because their posterity, the future generations, they want to have the same proclamation of the word of God that they themselves have had. So it is understandable that Harvard would say the following in their student rule book back in the 1600s, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17.3. Did I mention that this is Harvard? <laughs> this is Harvard, just outside of Boston. Let me keep reading in the rule book. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2.3. The student rule book also said this, everyone, meaning every student, shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths, as his tutor shall require. According to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word giveth light, it giveth understanding 
to the simple Psalm 119, 130. Of course, the Harvard of today is quite different. The Harvard of today, just the other day, over 20 student organizations endorsed the barbaric murderers who beheaded babies, Israeli babies. Over 20 student organizations of this school, Harvard, endorsed Hamas over Israel. To say that we have fallen is a gross, gross understatement. To say that we have rejected God is a gross understatement. Those who say that our founding fathers were not Christian are either misinformed or bold-faced liars. And I submit to you more often than not, it is the second of those. It is not an accident that these United States of America were founded as the freest of all nations in the history of nations, with the only exception being Israel herself which came directly from the hand of God. Spiritual freedom produces political freedom. Let me say that again. Spiritual freedom produces political freedom. And the flip side is true as well. Spiritual bondage produces political bondage. There's a reason why our freedoms are being eroded in the United States. It's because It is because we have come to embrace spiritual bondage. And so that as we will see as this evening unfolds, that produces a particular set of laws. Spiritual bondage produces laws that are of a particular approach and spiritual freedom produces laws that are of a very different approach. Political entities, be they nations, states, counties, or cities are blessed or cursed as a result of the righteousness or the wickedness of its people. Proverbs 11.11 reads like this, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. We have come to celebrate wickedness in our nation, which I hate saying because I love my country, but it's the God's honest truth. We have come to celebrate evil, and as a result, we have divorced ourselves divorced ourselves from divine truth, which in the end is the only truth that matters. Jesus is truth personified. John 14, 6, I am the way and one of many truths and the life. Did I read that wrong? Yes. yes. Yeah. I am the way and one among other truths no. and the life. Absolutely not. Am I still reading that wrong? Yes. He says, I am the way of the truth and the life. And no one, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. You see, our culture demands inclusivity, but Jesus demands exclusivity. Our culture says all roads lead to God. All ways lead to God. And Jesus says one road leads to God. One way leads to God. And that road has one name on it, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, God incarnate. Because we have come to reject Jesus, truth has now become flexible. Truth has now become fluid. We have unanchored ourselves from the rock, capital R. Remember, Paul describes Christ as the rock in 1 Corinthians 10. Because we have unanchored ourselves from the rock, we are drifting. We are now drifting in a sea of deception. And so we have new words. Actually, they're the same words, but with new definitions. Because we are drifting in this sea of deception, our words, our vocabulary is now being redefined. And that makes logical sense. Because if we have changed our priorities, if we have changed right from wrong and inverted good and evil and reversed them so that evil is now good and good is now evil, then of course the words that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents used to use that had this sort of meaning, of course those words now have to have a new meaning. Because otherwise our cultural view, which has become reversed 
evil's now good and good's now evil, we have no way to communicate our new perception. And so we need vocabulary, the same vocabulary that we used to have, but now that vocabulary needs to have new meaning, like the word freedom. The word freedom. The way freedom today is defined is freedom is the right to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. And then we think of harm as only that which we can see and smell and touch and taste because we live by sight and not by faith. And so we are blind to spiritual harm. We live by sight and not by faith. So we don't see the spiritual harm. This is what is happening in our culture. We don't see the spiritual harm that we are inflicting on our marriages, on our children, on our families, on our, communi on our communities, or on our nation. Our culture is so oblivious to spiritual truth that we now say it is freedom. In fact, freedom demands what I'm about to say. We now say that it is freedom for a male to marry a male and a female to marry a female. We now say that it is freedom to try and transform your body into the opposite gender. We now say that it is freedom for a woman to slaughter her unborn child in her womb. We now say that it is freedom for a husband to trade his wife in for a newer model or his wife or the wife to trade her husband in for a newer model, in other words, divorce on demand. We now say that it is freedom to make and distribute all kinds of pornography. Forever, our political system, our laws saw the harm, the spiritual harm of those things. And so our laws prohibited each one of those things, but not anymore, not anymore. Now our laws not only tolerate those things, we celebrate them. We promote them. We embrace them. Something changed. I mean, something changed in terms of a sea change, a fundamental change for laws to be written this way. And now those laws are diametrically opposed, 180 degree opposite. I mean, something huge changed in our culture for us to make this sort of change in our political system, meaning in our laws. Here's what's happened. We have detached our laws from divine truth. We have detached political freedom from spiritual freedom. Today, it is personal autonomy that is supreme, not God's law. Personal autonomy is one of the great idols of the progressive movement. So if you read one of these, one of these opinions from one of these liberal courts, whether it's a trial court or a mid-level appellate court, or the Supreme Court, and you read one of these opinions issued by progressive judges. Well, I guess I guess let, let me just go back. Let me let me let me step back for a second. A good opinion from a court is an opinion that goes back in time and, and, and relies on an authority. Maybe that's a case from 100 years earlier or even better, a case from 150 years earlier, 200 years earlier. Wow. The court is confronted in modern day with some issue and they're not really sure how to address it. And so they look back in time to see how this court or that court addressed it 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And they say, ah, OK, they didn't address the same issue back then, but they addressed kind of a similar issue. And so we're going to hang our hat on that authority. We're going to cite that authority and we're going to use that to inform our analysis of how to deal with this issue today. That's what a good opinion, a well-reasoned opinion looks like. But what's conspicuously missing, what's absent from the opinions of progressive judges is a case from 100 years ago or a case from 150 years ago, because there ain't none of them. Those don't exist because those cases back then, they're of a different era. Those cases back then were still based on when our law, when our political system was still grounded in God's word. And so what the progressive judges do, what the liberal judges do, is they don't cite one of those old cases because those old cases are against them. They cite a new authority. And then the new authority is personal autonomy. <laughs> personal autonomy. That's what they rely upon. And that's because we have a new God. 
We have a new God. Our new God is not the God of our fathers. Our new God is you and me. Secular humanism. That's our new God. Personal autonomy elevates humanity above God, and it encourages that grotesque, horrifying statement that is found in the very last verse of the book of Judges. I mean, it is a repugnant statement that is found in the very last verse of the book of Judges. Remember, the book of Judges is a book about the dark ages of Israel when they were waiting for a king. It's a, it's, it's a book that, that is the period of time from Joshua to the first king, King Saul. And so the, the book of Judges, I mean, it starts kind of good and then it goes down pretty quickly and there's this spiral the spiral of sin in the book of Judges. It's the dark ages of Israel, and it's when God had very severe judgment, very severe punishment for Israel. And the very last verse of the book describes what happened. It's, it's, it's kind of a summary statement of what happened in the era of the Judges. Anybody remember what that statement is? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what the Supreme Court, not the whole Supreme Court, that's what the liberal justices want. Personal autonomy. If you think it's good, good for you. And if you think it's good, good for you. If you think it's right, then do it. And if you think it's right, and if I think it's right, then we should do it. Because I'm God. And you're God, and you're God, and you're, we're all God. This is the authority that we have come to rely upon us, the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Do you remember the statement, you can't legislate morality? I mean, that used to be this kind of mantra. They say it all the time. Well, let's introduce this bill. No, you cannot legislate morality. Well, let's, no, you cannot, legis you cannot legislate morality. It was like this mantra said over and over and over again. It's interesting to me that no, no one really uses that mantra anymore. My response to that mantra is nonsense. Nonsense. Pure fiction is that mantra. You can't legislate morality? Nonsense. Law by its very nature is about morality. The Cambridge Dictionary defines morality this way. It is a set of personal or social standards for good or bad behavior and character. The Collins, the Collins Dictionary defines morality this way. Morality is the belief that some behavior is right and acceptable and that other behavior is wrong. A nation's laws are the expression of what that nation has determined to be right and wrong. So the law follower is determined to be in the right and the law violator is determined to be the wrong, and he or she is penalized for it. Of course laws legislate morality. That's what they do. The question is, whose morality do they legislate? Now, I'm not suggesting that laws can change the human heart. They cannot. Perhaps the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are the prime example of that, right? They, they had the Mosaic law, the, the law that came from the hand of God, and yet their hearts were fundamentally wicked, so much so that they killed the Son of God. Or to use Jesus' words with respect to their hearts, in Matthew 23, he's, he's, he's speaking to them, and he says, they, have, they are whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So no, I'm not suggesting that law can change the human heart. I'm suggesting that the false teaching, you can't legislate morality, was a Trojan horse. Was a Trojan horse of the progressive movement. A, a Trojan horse that we Christians, we saw outside the city gates and we said, wow, look at that, 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 that that's beautiful. Open the gates, hurry, 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 open the gates. Bring that, roll the horse in, close the gates. And we looked at the horse and we said, wow, that is a beautiful, beautiful horse. And once it came into the gates, we stopped 
thinking biblically. We stopped being vigilant in the spiritual war. We dulled our senses, our spiritual senses, with respect to false teaching. Once the Christians bought into the mantra, you can't legislate morality, then the progressives dismounted from the horse and proceeded to legislate their morality, proceeded to pass laws that were based on their own morality, based on their own value system that is fundamentally opposed to God. Look at how Pastor Ron Hale puts it. With red-faced indignation, liberals pre preached a one-point sermon for years. You can't legislate morality. Once they won over certain liberal theologians and churchmen, the liberal vanguard became emboldened to castigate all other religious resistors of their secular agenda as Bible thumpers and backwoods bigots. Mesmerized by their morality can't be legislated mantra, conservatives seemed naive to the liberal bait and switch as they legislated their values, their views and values into American courts. Every American law reflects some moral code. Someone's brand of morality always prevails, religious or irreligious. Close quote. Law, by definition, is a people's view of right and wrong. Law is the legislation of a people's view of morality. Today, our laws embody the progressive's sense of morality. Our laws embody our modern definition of freedom. Again, that definition goes like this. You can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else, and then we ignore spiritual harm. We ignore any spiritual harm, and this is why I say that that definition is flawed, because it is godless. True freedom is grounded in Christ. The next word, word that I'd like to talk about is discrimination. The scripture addresses discrimination. It makes clear that everyone has equal value, equal privilege, and equal opportunity before God. Tall, short, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, rich, poor. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 10, verse 12. He says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul also speaks of this in Galatians 3.28 where he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that we lose our racial or our gender identity. Identity is important, right? You, you hear all these people, I identify this way, and I identify that way. I mean, in some sense, there's a truth going on here. Identity is important. It's important if you identify with sin versus it's important if you identify with God's calling of who you are. He made them male and female in his own image, Genesis 1 says. That's how he's made you. So that should be your identity. You say, wow, God, you are an awesome God, and I praise you for it. As opposed to, no, I don't want your, I don't want you, and I don't want the identity that you have created. We'll speak more about identity in a little bit. My point is, Paul is not saying that we lose our racial identity or our gender identity. The white guy is always the white guy. The black guy is always the black guy. The male is always a male. The, the female is always a female. What Paul is saying is that we have equal value, equal privilege, equal opportunity before God even though God has made us different, because God is a God of diversity. He creates diversity. But as we will see, there's a distinction between God-created diversity and man-created diversity. Heaven will be characterized by all races, Revelation 5, verse 9. And they in heaven sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, the you there is Jesus. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, I need to be careful. 
I need to be careful here because I do not mean to suggest that God does not discriminate. He most assuredly does. God most assuredly discriminates. This is the part of Christianity that is so offensive to our godless culture, that is so offensive to our prideful, unbelieving culture. God discriminates between those who trust in his Christ and those who do not. All people are savable, but only some are saved. Only those who believe in Christ, who trust in Christ, who rely upon Christ for their access to heaven will be saved. Those who trust in Christ, regardless of their race, social status, or gender, enjoy eternal salvation, eternal life with God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever times another forever and ever and ever and ever. And those who reject Christ, like my lawyer friends, who I love dearly, many of them are atheists. As much as I hate saying what I'm about to say, it's, it's in the scripture. And it's not my responsibility to like it or to dislike it. It's to accept it and to proclaim it. My friends are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And that hurts me to say a lot because they're great guys. But they're unbelievers. And they have rejected the only way of salvation. And so I say again, God most assuredly discriminates. He discriminates between those who trust in Christ, who he saves, who he plucks off the death train and makes them his daughter, his son, his child. Versus those who remain on the death train because they are the enemies of God, because they have rejected the one and only way of salvation. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. And those who have trusted in Christ will spend eternity with Christ because where Christ is, there is joy and love unimaginable, unimaginable forever. That is discrimination of the highest order. There's no way around it. That is discrimination for all of eternity. That is discrimination that is done by God himself. That is divine discrimination. This is serious Serious business. We need to be careful with the word discrimination. Like the word freedom, the word discrimination is used differently than in generations past. We're taught by the culture that all discrimination is bad. But is that true? Is that true? Isn't some discrimination good? Isn't it good to discriminate between certain groups? Like in athletics, when you have some kids who work really hard at the sport and they and they exercise and they practice and they practice and they practice and they win the race and other kids are like, eh, whatever. They just kind of blow it off. I mean, shouldn't we discriminate between those two groups? Or does everybody get a trophy? Shouldn't we discriminate in education? Because some kids say, you know what? I'm going to take my education seriously because my parents are training me to do that. I want to do that. And so they study and they study and they study and they get a good grade. And some kids, eh, and they blow it off. They blow off studying. They blow off science and, and English and math. Shouldn't we discriminate between those two groups? Or should we dumb down the educational process so that everyone gets treated the same? Or should we abolish honor roll and class rank and entrance exams and penalties for turning homework in late in the name of anti-discrimination, as is happening in a number of school districts around the nation? How about the legal system? Should we discriminate in the legal system? Should we discriminate between the criminal and the law-abiding citizen? Or should we abolish prisons? Should we abolish police departments by defunding them in the name of anti-discrimination as many elected officials are pushing. The answer is no, 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 no. We shouldn't do any of those things. Of course we shouldn't do those things. The point is some discrimination is good and other discrimination is bad. It depends on the reason for the discrimination. For example, discrimination based on race is bad. But discrimination based on God's standards is good and right. We've defined how we think, we've redefined how we think of discrimination because of the third word this evening, and that is equality. Our culture has elevated equality above God 
Equality has become an idol. And like all idols, equality is evil. Now you say, well, no, 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 no. Wait a second now. Wait a second, Alex. Now you just went too far. What are you talking about, Alex? I I thought our country was founded on equality. It was. But they meant equality differently than the way that word is used today. Right. When Jefferson wrote and the other signers signed off on the on the on the Declaration of Independence, each putting their head at risk, because if the revolution failed, the American Revolution failed, each one of them would have been hung by the redcoats when they signed the Declaration of Independence. And it says all men are created equal. What they meant was the equal application of the laws, because we didn't like how King George applied the laws unequally. And so when Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, and they, the, the other signers, the other founding fathers signed it, they meant that the law was to be applied equally. Of course, the founding fathers didn't do this perfectly. They were wrong on the issue of race. They were wrong on the issue of African slaves, but their intent was noble. Equal application of the laws. And let me say, it was unheard of, unheard of in the history of nations when they did it. What? Equal application of the law? You're crazy. They fall out of their chair laughing. What? Unheard of in the history of nations, with the one exception of Israel, of course. Today, the idea of equality has morphed. It is transformed into something godless. Equality seeks to remove God-ordained differences. It seeks to undo God's created order to undo marriages, to undo families, to undo children, to undo nations, economies, even your eternal destiny. Let me explain what I mean. God created differences in the roles of husbands and wives, but the false God of equality demands that husbands and wives' roles be interchangeable. God created sex between a husband and a wife, but the false God of equality demands that any type of sexual relations be regarded as equal as sex between a husband and a wife. God created differences between men and women, between boys and girls, but the false God of equality demands that gender be interchangeable. God created nations, but equality says it's racist, it's xenophobic or some kind of phobic to be patriotic. Equality says we don't need a nation, we don't need a border. That's what equality says. God created property rights. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, speaks of God creating the power to make wealth. But equality says, the false God of equality says, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. Right? Economic equality. Socialism, in other words. God created true religion. All the others are posers. All the others are fakers, counterfeits. One true religion. One access to God and one alone. One, capital O. One being a person who is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. But the false God of equality says all religions lead to God. All religions are of equal value and you are a bigot if you think otherwise. Our idol of equality is at the core of the modern social justice movement. Also referred to more more. more Uh, recently referred to as wokeness. The wokeness movement is satanically energized. Let me say that again. The wokeness movement is satanically energized. It has demonic fingerprints all over it. In fact, the devil himself was the first wokester. He was the first social justice warrior. In eternity past, Satan demanded equality with God, but really what he wanted was superiority Mm -hmm. from God. And so he tried to dethrone God, and the word that is used in Ezekiel 28 is violence. I mean, think of this. Violence in the abode of God. Unimaginable. Satan thought he had the right to rule, and so immediately God showed him who has that right by sentencing him, although he delayed the sentence. And in in the delay, he created humanity. He sentenced him to the lake of fire, which is the ultimate destiny of the devil. Look at what Lucifer said when he revolted against God. 
Isaiah 14 speaks of this. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Star of the morning is the Hebrew word halel. Halel translated into, when, when the Bible is translated into Latin by Jerome around 400 AD or so, called the Vulgate. When Jerome got to the Hebrew word halel in Isaiah 14, he used the Latin word Lucifer. And so this is where we get the name Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, or O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, Lucifer demanded like the most high. I want to be like the most, I want to be like God. Lucifer demanded equality, but what he really wanted was superiority. In the Garden of Eden, the devil deceived Adam's wife through the idol of equality. That's why in Genesis 3, you read that the serpent said, you will be like God. Mm, That sounds good, she thought. You will be like God. And this is the tool of deception that the devil used to get Eve to eat of the tree, equality with God. But in reality, it was an effort to dethrone God as the sovereign. Like all idols, the false god of equality is seductive and destructive. Equality is a myth. Equality is a myth. It is a tool used by tyrants to snuff out freedom, to destroy freedom. You just see that in in, in the history of nations. In the French Revolution, for example, where they had as the rallying as the rallying cry, liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? Liberty, equality, fraternity. Fraternity was this idea of, hey, we're all together. They're, they're, they're screaming, liberty, fraternity, liberty, equality, fraternity. And meanwhile, the lawyer Robespierre is slaughtering, beheading tens of thousands with the newfound invention of the guillotine. Fast forward in time to the Bolshevik Revolution. And Another lawyer, Lenin, watch out for the lawyers. But another lawyer, Lenin, comrade Lenin, leads this revolution and they're pushing equality while they slaughter millions. Fast forward in time to the Chinese communist revolution. And Mao, Mao Zedong, leads that revolution, pushing equality and again slaughtering millions. Chairman Mao led that slaughter. The inconvenient truth is that freedom guarantees inequality. Freedom guarantees inequality. There's the old saying, free people are not equal, and equal people are not free. Proclaim it from the rooftops. Free people are not equal, and equal people are not free. Freedom means I have the ability to succeed or to fail, and you remove my ability to fail, now you have removed my ability to succeed. Freedom is opposed to equality. They are in conflict with one another. You can have one, but not the other. Same with justice. Justice is opposed to equality. Justice is giving everybody what they deserve. Equality is giving everybody the same thing. Justice and equality are in opposition with each other. You can have one, but not the other. Equality is the effort to undo God's diversity. You hear all this talk about diversity, diversity. Yay, diversity, yay, 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 diversity. And it's a true statement that diversity is good. But what's a truer statement, what's a more accurate statement, is to say that God's diversity is what is good. There's a distinction between man-made diversity and God's diversity. Man-made diversity is contrary to God's design. It is counterfeit diversity that seeks to undo God's created order. For example, God created diversity in marriage. Unity in diversity, right? There's diversity in marriage, at least God's design for for marriage, a male and a female. That's diversity. You don't hear the culture say, yay, I love that diversity, because we are a godless culture. There's God's design for marriage is diversity, a male and a female, unity 
in diversity. Unity of bodies, unity of soul, unity of purpose, unity of will. But our godless culture is dissatisfied with God's design. So we create counterfeit diversity by redefining marriage. God created diversity in gender, but our godless culture is dissatisfied with God's design. So we create counterfeit diversity by redefining gender. Our founding fathers recognized that God created equality is what matters. And that's why the declaration says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men evolved equal. That's not what it says. That all men were created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, not their evolver. I know I'm making up a word here, but not, not by evolution, but they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The countries that are truly free are those that have God as their foundation. They are those that have God's word as their foundation. Countries that are truly free recognize that equality comes from God. So they apply their laws equally to all people, while at the same time, anchoring their laws in God's word. You have to have both, because the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment in the federal constitution that was passed after the Civil War, that equal protection clause has the concept of the equal application of law, which is wonderful. But if you have equal application of law without the law being grounded in God's word, now it's a free-for-all. Now it's anything that anybody wants, personal autonomy. You get that. You want that? You get that. You want that? You get that. I want that? I get that. We all get what we want, regardless of God's standard, regardless of God's law, regardless of the spiritual harm, because we're blind to spiritual harm, since we live by sight and not by faith, now as a culture. And so countries that are truly free are countries who have God and God's word as their foundation and that apply their laws equally and that anchor their laws in God's word. Our country has forgotten this and so we drift. We drift in confusion and in rebellion against God. So you may be thinking, well, Alex, you got any good news today? Got any good news tonight? I do have good news. The good news is that God loves you. And that God has a plan for your life. And that your God is sovereign. Your God is in charge. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are we to do? Though we live in a culture that has come to hate our God, we are to stand our ground. We are to stand our ground. You stand your ground. Not in your power because you are weak and I am weak, but in God's power, in God's word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. We are to study God's truth. We are to think consistent with God's truth. And we are to proclaim God's truth from the rooftops. Proclaim it to your kids, to your grandkids, to your neighbors on social media. Proclaim it. Speak the truth in love, but by God, speak it. Because if you don't, who will? Speak the truth in love. Speak it unapologetically. Speak the truth and live the truth. Live the word of God in and through your life. Think it. Think it. As a man is, as a man thinks, so he is, the proverb says. The way we, the, the reason we speak the way we speak is based on how our thoughts, our thoughts are one direction. It produces a particular sort of speaking and acting. Our thoughts are in another direction. It produces a different sort of speaking and acting. And so we are to live the word of God. We are to metabolize the word of God and follow the word of God. It is critical that we continue to live God's truth and we continue to obey God. Because as goes the believer, so goes the nation. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. If believers will turn to God, then maybe, just maybe, God will spare us the judgment that we have earned. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18.
Genesis 18 speaks of this. Genesis 18, verse 19. Genesis 18, verse 19 is a verse that introduces a conversation between God and Abraham. It reads like this. Genesis 18, verse 19. For I, God, have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God is about to share with Abraham God's thoughts so that Abraham will learn the importance of teaching his descendants to obey God and to follow God's ways and to not engage in the wickedness of the world like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep reading in verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Jump down to verse 23. Abraham came near, he came near to the Lord and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous and the wicked? In other words, won't you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there are enough godly people there in those cities? Keep reading in verse 24. Abraham says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Notice how Abraham is interested in seeing that the righteous are delivered. He is humbly praying to God on behalf of the righteous, and the cities will benefit if there are enough righteous within them. This is a genuinely humble request from Abraham, and so God lets him do a back and forth that we would never do with God. God lets him do a back and forth with him to learn how many is too little. Look at verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. That's a way of saying, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I recognize my total inferiority to God. But can I ask you one more question? Verse 28, suppose the 50 are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak, suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. But there were not 10. There were not 10 in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jump down to Genesis 19, verse 24. Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The verb overthrew in verse 25 is the Hebrew word hafach, and it sounds the way it means. Utter annihilation, utter destruction. God vaporized them. He vaporized them. Ruth Graham was right. Billy Graham's wife. She said to Billy Graham, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's not going to apologize. Today, believers... Very few believers stand between God and his judgment of our nation. Is it 20,000? Is it 200,000? Is it 2 million out of 330 million or whatever our population, national population number is up to? I don't know what it is now. 
God calls us to be righteous in the midst of unrighteousness. God calls us to do the best of things in the worst of times. If you will submit to God, if you will walk with God, if you will elevate God above everything else, then just maybe, maybe he will spare us the judgment that we so richly deserve. Tonight we've seen three words, freedom, discrimination, and equality. As to freedom, we have seen that political freedom that is not anchored in spiritual freedom promotes wickedness where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. As to discrimination, we've seen that some discrimination is good and other discrimination is bad. The question is, what is the reason? What is the basis for the discrimination? Some reasons are good and some reasons are bad. As to equality, we've seen that we must distinguish between man-made equality and God-made equality. Man-made equality is an evil counterfeit. God-made equality is good and beautiful. He has made us with equal value, equal privilege, equal opportunity before him. So our laws should be applied equally while also being grounded in God's law, in God's morality, in God's absolute truth. We should pray for revival, though we do not deserve it. We should pray for revival. I'll close with the words of Josiah Holland, an American poet from the 1800s. He said it well in his prayer, which is also a poem. He says, God give us men. A time like this demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who possess opinions and a will. Men who have honor. Men who will not lie. Men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking. Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog. In public duty and in public thinking. Private thinking, excuse me. For while the rabble with their thumb-worn creeds, their large professions and their little deeds mingle in selfish strife, Lo, freedom weeps, wrong rules the land, and waiting justice sleeps. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you as fallen, broken sinners in worship of your great, great love. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done for us, what you are doing, and for what you will do for us, your children. We worship you. We honor you. We ask that you give us a revival that we recognize that we do not deserve it. We ask that you raise up men and women who would obey you, who would honor your name and worship you, who would stand in the gap, who would proclaim your truth and love in a culture that has come to despise you and despise your people. Give us courage. Give us the motivation and give us the strength to stand in your word and to proclaim your truth. We make this prayer in the name of his majesty, the king of all the kings, Jesus Christ himself, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.